This episode is brought to you by Aura. That's O-U-R-A. The Aura Ring, from my perspective, is the single best wearable on the market. I use it to measure my sleep, activity, and readiness on a daily basis. I bought my Aura Ring several months ago before talking with the company's CEO on the podcast. I haven't taken it off since. I believe what gets measured gets managed. So if you care at all about your health, which you should, you have to measure your sleep in order to manage it. Aura measures much more than just my time in bed. It tracks my REM sleep versus deep sleep, my resting heart rate and heart rate variability, my temperature, my activity, and much, much more. For $299, you can get your own Aura Ring on AuraRing.com. That's O-U-R-A-R-I-N-G.com. AuraRing.com. Okay, let's get into it. Thank you, Chow, for joining me on the show today. I really appreciate you taking the time, and it's great to have you on. Uh, I've seen you tweeting a lot about crypto in the past, and more recently, a lot about longevity, which was what really made me start paying attention. Those are two of my greatest interests, and, and longevity is one you don't see people talking about quite as often, so it was refreshing to see that. Uh, you started at, at Masari and, and were helping with the founding team there, uh, I think focused on product. Prior to that, you uh, you did 10 years as a quantitative uh, trader, I believe. And, and more recently, you've been working on DeFi Alliance, which is an interesting sort of uh, accelerator for, for DeFi projects. Uh, but for those who don't know you, I uh, would love to sort of get into the, the gritty details of, of sort of how you got your start from as early as you're willing to go to, uh, to where you are today. Sure. Uh, well, number one, uh, thanks, Jake, for having me. Really appreciate it. Um, yeah, uh, I guess maybe, uh, taking a, um, chronological order of things, uh, I graduated, uh, from Waterloo, University of Waterloo, where also Vitalik went to, but I'm four years old, older, never, our paths never, uh, really, uh, crossed each other, but I studied math at Waterloo, um, you know, well, interestingly, um, before Waterloo, I got into, uh, the best, uh, pre-med school uh, in, in Montreal, uh, or two of the, actually two of the best pre-med schools there. Um, so I, I've always been, uh, I guess, you know, interested slash curious about um, biology, biochem, that kind of stuff, which later led to my current kind of uh, obsession about longevity, health in general. But anyway, so after Waterloo, after graduation, I did quant trading. Uh, the thing about quant trading is uh, it's not your like typical Wall Street kind of trading, like, you know, the, the kind of traditional kind of traders. It's really, it's really nerdy. It's really like, you know, sits at the intersection of finance and technology. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's data science driven, um, you know, software driven, hardware driven, even uh, that kind of stuff. So the reason why that, uh, I mentioned that is because something like Bitcoin, which also sits at the intersection of crypto or finance and technology, uh, is something that naturally drew my attention in the very early days uh, due to, uh, I guess, my uh, previous background and experience. Um, so, you know, I got into Bitcoin, I guess, you know, pretty early. Uh, the day I learned about Bitcoin was maybe sometime in 2011, 2012, when I saw on the boomer terminal that uh, some, some asset uh, dropped like 80% within a week or something like that, which is quite unusual by 
traditional finance uh, standard. So I, I was like, you know, what kind of uh, what kind of asset does this, right? Um, so I started learning about Bitcoin. I thought it was interesting. Um, you know, it, it was novel enough that um, I, I said to myself, if this thing ex- succeeds, it's probably going to do me a hundred x or a thousand x. But most likely, more likely than not, it's probably going to fail. But uh, the expected value of making a bet is still way um, positive. So uh, took a chance on Bitcoin, obviously later. Uh, Ethereum as well uh, in 2014, uh, primarily thanks to the fact that uh, Vitalik also went to Waterloo. Uh, just wanted to support somebody who went to the same school. Uh, got lucky there as well. Um, and then, you know, 2017, um, a bunch of things happened. Obviously there was a lot of you know, scams and ICOs, but it was, 2017 was really the moment I realized um, this Ethereum thing or crypto in general was going somewhere. Um, and so I started working full-time. I, I left my, um, you know, trade, like, you know, extremely uh, lucrative uh, trading kind of uh, uh, profession and I got into crypto full-time. Uh, as part of the founding team, I'm sorry, I started building, uh, or I, I ran the product there, built out the technical team. Um, obviously, you know, as as a very early stage, as part of the very early stage startup, you get involved with a bunch of other things as well, like operations, biz dev, research, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, did a little bit of everything. Um, and when I left about last year, which is uh, maybe two years after I started, Masara was doing really well. We were almost, uh, we're pretty much cash flow positive. We were like about 30 people. Um, and uh, I just wanted to, to start something from scratch again. Um, and coincidentally, that was when DeFi started uh, or DeFi really st- started to, to take off. Uh, I mean, obviously DeFi started uh, well before, maybe 2018 with MakerDAO and that kind of stuff. But 2020 with the compound, liquidity mining, that was really when this whole thing started. Um, so we started the Define Alliance, uh, you know, myself uh, being based in Chicago, we saw a lot of interest from some of the largest uh, trading firms in the world, uh, like Jump Trading, you know, DRW, like all these guys, um, they were looking to DeFi. And in fact, they've been in crypto since um, as early as 2013, 2014. So these guys have always been uh, well ahead of the curve. And they got into DeFi before everyone else as well. Uh, that was before the DeFi summer. Uh, they were interested in learning about DeFi. And then we also saw a bunch of DeFi projects looking for institutional liquidity. That was, again, about a year ago. So we saw an opportunity to bridge the gap between these two worlds. And that's how we started the DeFi Alliance, which you know runs a, uh, an accelerator program for DeFi startups where you know, they get mentorship from you know, some of the largest market makers, and, and these are not just crypto native market makers and trading firms. These are some of the largest traditional um, trading firms. Um, they get support from those guys, uh, as well as you know, some crypto native investors who can help with uh, product design, token economics, um, some of the best lawyers in this space. We're very close to regulators uh, in Washington and around the world. Um, so yeah, that's sort of what we do at the Defense, and, and that's uh, where I am today. That's, that's a great story, and I appreciate you sharing it. Um, I, I want to Defi Alliance sounds super interesting. I, I want to start by 
rewinding a little bit to uh, back when you were you were trading and you first discovered Bitcoin. It, it's interesting because a lot of people, um, you know, they first discovered Bitcoin from either seeing the price directly or, or a friend or something. But in, in almost every case, it was during one of the periods where it's up a lot. Uh, it's funny that you sort of it got your attention on an 80 percent drop, but then you sort of still had that curiosity to, to dig in and uh, you got interested a little bit. And uh, sort of that that just planted the seed that that grew from there. Can you talk a little bit about how, like in the early days, because 2012, you know, very early, uh, most people weren't, you know, first of all, weren't aware of it. And then even people who were interested in it, I don't think many of them sort of could imagine the, the sort of magnitude that it would grow to become even just today, let alone in the, in the future that, that people now envision it, it growing into. Uh, so I'd be curious about like sort of your your first impressions. And then from an, an investing standpoint, you mentioned how, you know, it, of course, it, it had a, a high probability of, of probably totally failing and going to zero, but there was some chance that it would go up 100x or 1000x. I'm curious how you think about those sort of opportunities in terms of allocating some portion of, of your money. Like, is it something where you just put a small amount of money or, or you're actually willing to that fairly large on, on these opportunities with extremely high upsides, even with smaller probabilities. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess, um, you know, in hindsight, back, I would say like back in 2012, I, I didn't really quite understand Bitcoin. Um, to be very honest, I uh, spent quite a bit of time on Bitcoin talk, which is like the like very first forum where all these um, libertarians and technologists uh, hung out and, and talk about Bitcoin and how you might one day become this digital gold thing and change the entire world, uh, especially when it comes to central banking, all that stuff. Um, I just said to myself, okay, these guys look pretty interesting and, and they, they seem to be really ambitious. Um, generally speaking, it's not a bad idea to, to bet alongside uh, people like that. So that's number one. And number two is when you see a technology like that, that seems fundamentally novel and interesting, but you don't know if it'll work. I think the most important thing to do there is to not overthink. Um, you see a lot of like, especially macroeconomists now, nowadays who still, who are still bearish on, on crypto, especially Bitcoin. And I think they just overthink this kind of stuff. Like they, they try to convince themselves in the world with a bunch of theoretical reasons why this might not work. Uh, of course, it might not work, but you know, if it does work, then the upside is huge. And I think um, it—you don't want let ego, and um, you don't want you don't want let, let ego to really you know affect your decision making when it comes to stuff like this. When it comes to like investing in highly um, asymmetric uh, investment opportunities. Uh, you don't want to overthink it. I think that the best thing to do is if you see something really novel and fundamentally interesting, uh, just just take a bet, uh, but take a small bet. Don't bet your entire um, you know, savings into something like that. But obviously the risk reward, the, the, the risk profile nowadays is a lot different than when it was in 2012. Um, obviously the risk uh, is a lot lower. The entire industry has been de-risked. Um, because um, there is this sort of reflexivity in crypto, especially in Bitcoin, the more institutional money there is in, in this asset, 
the the more bullish you can actually be on it uh, because it's it's a um, um, it's sort of like digital gold where the value really comes from people's perception and the, this uh, inner subjective belief in this asset. Um, so uh, the risk profile is different. So you can probably bet a little bit more these days. Uh, I personally have way more than uh, the average person should be, uh, um, should be, make, should be taking, the, the kind of risk that the average person should be taking. But uh, I would say like, it's not unreasonable to put like, frankly, five, 10, 20% of your, um, of your savings into, uh, into this asset class, especially the, the blue chips, the, the, top, uh, the top assets by market cap, like Bitcoin and Ethereum, uh, especially for young, uh, it's not a bad idea. But if you go back nine years, um, all the way back to like 2012, uh, putting your your entire net worth into an asset like that is probably too risky. Um, so maybe back in the day, um, you know, I guess back in the day myself, I probably put, I don't know, maybe still maybe like 10, 20, 30. I don't, I don't know what it was, but I was really young. And I said to myself, okay, if this thing fails, I can still work. I can I still have a pretty good career in, in trading, right? Uh, mm -hmm. I, can, I can still make it all back. So um, it depends on a lot of fa factors. Uh, depend depends on your time horizon, your age, uh, your you know whether or not you have like you know people that you have to take care of uh, in your family, your job, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I think that's a great point. People a lot of times will sort of ask for like sort of blanket investment advice, and my perspective has been always that like maybe not always, but more recently, the more I've thought about it, I realize like investing is very much a personal thing where you know if you're 60 and are looking to retire in the next few years uh you'll have like a way different sort of set of priorities to invest according to than if you're like you said early on in your career uh willing to take a high risk high reward situation when the reward can potentially be just incredibly meaningful um and sort of set you maybe even for the rest of your life and the downside is just well okay uh, you know i, I work two years for all that money. And now I've lost a good amount of it, but I can just keep working. You know, I'm in my twenties or whatever it is. Um, so I think that's a really good point. And, uh, you know, you mentioned being like over allocated, uh, to crypto versus what you might like recommend to someone. But I think what's interesting is that, um, you know, people like yourself and, uh, you know, even myself, we're sort of betting more than just our money on crypto, right? Like we've invested a significant amount of our time and, uh, sort of careers to, well, really just time to, to crypto and, and to working and, and learning uh, with, within the space. And so uh, from my view, it's like, if you're going to, if you're going to spend the time, you might as well invest the money. Or if you're going to invest the time, you might as well invest the money. The, the first is actually more valuable in my perspective. And so you might as well sort of align them. So I think that's at least how I think about it. Uh, and, and speaking of, you know, the, the time sort of comparison, uh, I'm, I'm curious if you sort of can make an analogy between crypto and longevity, I know I know there's a lot of parallels, but one in yeah. particular that I think is interesting is this concept of like this, you know, hundred or a thousand x upside, with maybe in the beginning a seemingly small probability of actually coming to fruition. That's you know that was crypto in 2012. That's also I think longevity now, where um, you know you're not trying to cure a specific type of cancer or a specific type of this disease or that disease, you're, you're going for the full boat 
of trying to slow or reverse aging, which has this huge upside, this huge sort of benefit if, if you succeed. And, uh, you know, you can maybe put a relatively small amount of money to, towards making that a possibility and betting on that occurring. Um, how do you think about sort of that probability weighted, you know, high potential approach uh, between like crypto and longevity? Yeah, I just had like, I just had so many thoughts that, that crossed my mind during the last 30 seconds. Let, let's see where to start. Um, well, number one, I think the EV of betting on longevity is not just positive, it's potentially infinite because there is a non-zero chance. Uh, I, 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 like I didn't say this, obviously, like it's, it's something that Aubrey de Grey have said before, the, the, the possibility of escaping um, the longevity uh, uh, or the, the longevity escape velocity, right? Mm -hmm. the, the idea that, um, you know, as the technology improves, uh, you might be able to repair all the damages that you've uh, accumulated. And, and there's a possibility that, that that technology progresses faster than the damages that accumulate in your body that cause you to, to age. So this idea of longevity escape velocity, if it does happen, the, the, I mean, the EV is infinite. It's not positive, it's really infinite, hmm. right? Um, you know, the, the, the idea, the easiest way, it, assuming that's true, the easiest way to become the richest person in the world is to outlive everybody else and really leverage the, um, you know, the, uh, the, the, the eighth wonder in the world, which is the compounding, right? Uh, the, the, the compounding of, of investments. Um, so that's number one. Uh, number two, to your point, um, you know, it does seem to me that, um, well, obviously age is probably, actually like most people don't realize this, but age is the most important risk factor for uh, virtually every chronic disease, which is insane. Like everything that you can think of, like every like neurodegenerative disease or, you know, uh, hypertension, um, you know, cancer, like all these other things, um, they are uh, closely related or closely associated uh, with, with age. And yet somehow, since the beginning of modern medicine, we've never really focused on this particular risk factor. We try to focus on everything else. We try to treat diseases um, individually. We try to you know, develop, a, uh, develop a drug for every single disease. Um, and yet, if we're able to um, solve at least partially the, the problem with aging, it might be possible to um, help with a, a ton of diseases at the same time, right? So that, that's, that's one of the reasons why I, I find longevity such a, such a fascinating um, uh, industry as well as uh, an investment opportunity. Um, speaking to your earlier point about the uh, similarity between longevity and crypto, I think there's a lot of similarities. Uh, I think where longevity is today really reminds me of the early days of, of Bitcoin back in 2012, 2013, uh, where the average person either doesn't care or thinks is a total joke, but there is a group of very talented and ambitious people uh, who are really leading the charge in the space and, and building. Um, you know, I think a lot, of, and, and to that point, a lot of people in crypto are actually very passionate about longevity but they don't openly, they don't publicly talk about it because it's still such a controversial topic among the, the, the general public. But um, 
behind the scenes, I know there's so many, there, there's a ton of people who are interested. Every time I tweet about longevity, I would get a couple of DMs from people who are in crypto. Um, and just, you know, uh, and, and that's usually the beginning of a very interesting intellectual discussion. Um, so that's one similarity between uh, longevity and, and the early days of, of crypto. And the other one I noticed, again, I, I'm not sure, like I'm not an expert, but based on my conversation with uh, the experts in this domain, uh, it seems like the final boss for longevity uh, or I shouldn't, say, I, shouldn't, I shouldn't say the final boss, but one of the biggest challenges is regulations, is regulators. The fact that, um, you know, the vast majority of governments around the world uh, or the vast majority of public sectors uh, don't really um, uh, focus on this idea of anti-aging or have regulations that are potentially impediments to uh, the development of um, age-related uh, uh, drugs. Um, and that is certainly true in crypto. Uh, in crypto regulations, is, for me, it's the final boss um, in a sense that um, where we're going from today to 10 years from now will largely depend on uh, how regulations uh, will pan out. Um, to me, there, there are two biggest challenges in crypto. One is the tech and the other one is regulations. The tech is actually is challenging, but it's a solvable problem. But the regulations is something that I'm not really sure how things will pan out. It, it's a societal effort uh, and it's going to be extremely challenging. It's unlike tech, which is just a matter of time, regulations, there in regulations, there's so much uncertainty. So uh, this is the other like kind of uh, similarity uh, between the two. Um, yeah, ho hope that that answers your your question yeah no totally and i think it opens the door to uh to a few more i think uh one interesting point that you brought up was how uh you know basically how aging is at like you know it's above sort of all these other diseases like alzheimer's and and heart disease and cancer and one of the more interesting stats that i've heard um is basically i actually first heard this from Vitalik in, in preparing for an interview with him. And, uh, and it's basically that uh, I, I might, you know, don't quote me on this, but the numbers are approximately right. It was like, if we were to cure cancer totally, uh, the average, you know, human health span, human lifespan rather uh, in this case, I think would expand, you know, like three or three to five years or something like that. Uh, same thing with, with heart disease. And the reason being that, you know, if, if you cure one of these things, it's just like, okay, like the other one gets you like, if, if you don't get cancer, um, you know, you'll get heart disease or, or vice versa. And then there's like Alzheimer's and, and these other sort of uh, most popular reasons for death. And I'm sure there's others sort of waiting behind them if and when we were to cure all of them. But if you actually cure aging, or, or rather not even cure aging, but something much more reasonable sounding, which is like, extent, you know, slow aging by 10% or 20%, then you're adding like, okay, eight years or 16 years. And suddenly like the concept of living until like well past 120, which I think like the oldest person in the history like recorded was like in their 120s, maybe 122 or something like that. Um, it, it doesn't sound that unreasonable. And uh, it, it doesn't even sound that unreasonable to sort of occur in our lifetime once you start looking at like the animal studies and, and things like this. So it's super exciting. And I think sort of 
to that point, um, the fact that I had heard that stat from Vitalik, who's been pretty vocal, I think even increasingly vocal about um, his support for like life extension and generally interest in, in supporting longevity, um, supporting Aubrey de Grey. And, and uh, he's got, I think in his Twitter bio, he's got this fable of the dragon, which is sort of like an aging um, metaphor and something like that. Uh, so these people speaking up to your point, like a lot of people still, it's, it's too early and too controversial to talk about. Um, but people like Vitalik and, and you know, others who are, are starting to uh, talk about it more publicly, I think it's going to help with attention and with attention sort of comes some, some more funding, hopefully, and some more, you know, governments maybe considering things a little bit differently. So I'm sort of optimistic about the way that things can go. Um, how, how do you think crypto, you know, you mentioned like there's a lot of overlap and in interest, but um, crypto people, if things go the way that probably you and I are, are expecting them to, or think there's a high probability that they may, uh, people are, are going to be very rich who, who sort of were in crypto early and, and are in crypto in a big way now. Um, do you sort of have hope for longevity that, that these sort of new, this new class of rich will sort of have different priorities than the current and uh, maybe turn some of their focus and, and money towards longevity? Yeah, I certainly do. And I'm starting to see a trend among the um, you know early crypto adopters to spend more time um, you know, generally with their health, but specifically on longevity. I mean, it's very natural, right? Like once you get rich, once you don't have, once you basically removed all these finance related stress in your life what do you focus on next right like money you can, you, if, if you lose your money you can always make it back but if you lose your health uh it's going to be harder and so it's very natural for crypto people who um who have gotten rich um or are going to get rich to eventually focus on longevity and i think there are two ways that crypto people can really help with the longevity field and uh number one is obviously the funding I think there's a huge mismatch between um, uh, crypto and longevity when it comes to funding. Like crypto, there's way too much money. And in longevity, there's just not enough. Um, obviously, there's a, there's a chicken eye problem uh, between, like between funding and human capital, uh, right? Like if more human capital will lead to more funding, but also more funding will lead, lead to more talent uh, getting into this field. So I think funding will certainly help um, with the longevity field. I think a lot more crypto people will uh, start investing. In fact, a lot of, a lot of them have started uh, and a lot of them will do uh, philanthropy, uh, especially in, in longevity as well. So that's number one. Um, the other thing is just uh, the public perception, right? Like, you know, the fact that crypto has really taken off and the world is really paying attention to, to crypto now means that crypto people have a lot bigger voice in this world. People are listening to, to crypto people. And what is missing in longevity, I think, is this public perception of, um, of this field. Uh, most people still think it's a joke or most people think it's unethical or, um, or that you know, humans as a society have more important uh, priorities. I think it's really important to change this, this perception. And, um, you know, 
crypto people ha- are, are equipped to do this. Um, they, they have a big voice. Um, you know, they are, um, they're heard by the rest of the world. And I think they can really help shaping this public perception of, uh, long- uh, of longevity. So I think these are two of the ways in which, um, you know, I can see a, a big uh, overlap, increasing overlap between the two worlds in, in the near future. Yeah, I, I certainly hope that's right. Uh, so, so we talked about you know betting on longevity. Uh, I'd like to sort of bring that to uh, to more like tangible terms, if we can, and, and hear how you might think about betting on longevity. Uh, off the top of my head, like I would think you know you can sort of bet with your money or bet with your time, and money might be like investing or um, philanthropy, and time might be either like start trying to build something yourself or, or you know, get a career in longevity or, you know, on the other side, just sort of spending your time doing longevity, like, you know, fasting or using certain supplements or experimenting individually. How do you think Mm -hmm. about betting on longevity given, like you said, you know, it it may be actually an infinite EV. Okay. So say you're really convinced on this. What do you actually go and do? Um, I would say investing is, very hard for people who are not in this field full-time. Uh, for me personally, I spend maybe 10, 20% of my time uh, just reading about uh, this field um, and, and health in general. Uh, but even with that kind of time commitment, I don't think I am really equipped to make sound judgments when it comes to like very, very early stage startup. Even if I did have the, uh, the, the deal flow, which I have some, but I don't think I have the, the really the, the expertise to make judgments uh, or make sound investment decisions. So I generally just give my money to um, uh, funds uh, that, that, are, uh, that, that are focused on longevity uh, as a limited partner. Uh, I do also make a few investments, um, you know, individual uh, investments uh, as, as, as a direct investor, but those are relatively rare. And I, I love to, 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 to invest if, if I truly understand like whether the problem that they're solving and the solution. But generally speaking, I think for the average person, you might be better off, um, you know, tr- trying to, to become a, a, a limited partner in, in a good fund. But again, uh, you know, due to some regulations that, that I don't necessarily agree with, for, for instance, you know, like the, 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 the accredited investor kind of, um, uh, regulations. I don't think that option is even accessible to the vast majority of people. I think for the vast majority of people, um, just you know, take some time to learn about uh, this field, and you will eventually realize that a lot of that just leads to general health. Like aging or longevity and health are really one and the same. You, you don't live longer by not living healthier, and and vice versa. Um, so what you will end up realizing is if you just do the stuff that, that your doctor or people generally say you should do, uh, like exercise, like for instance, exercise at least, you know, two to three hours, ideally up to like five or six hours per week, you know, eat really healthy, eat whole foods, uh, a lot of vegetables. And also, you know, when it comes to diet, there's a lot of, um, debates around certain things, but there are a few things that there's almost no debate, right? Like eating a lot of vegetables, nuts, seeds, um, fruits to some extent. Um, you know, if you do that kind of stuff, uh, also meditate, uh, sleep well, reduce stress, 
take vitamin D, that kind of stuff, you will, you will do really well when it comes to uh, health span and, 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 uh, and lifespan. Um, and if you really want to take it to the next level, maybe learn about some of the supplements. Um, personally, I, I don't take that many stuff. I only take vitamin D. Uh, there's a lot of evidence for vitamin D for general health and, and longevity. I don't take that many, you know, every, anything else at the moment. Uh, I don't, I mean, like, you know, when it comes to supplements, there's, um, the, the evidence is usually not um, that strong enough. Uh, I mean, it's, at the end of the day, it's always a uh, matter of risk reward. If you think um, the, um, the reward of living a few years uh, longer is worth the risk of, you know, not knowing the potential um, short-term and long-term side effects, then um, you could potentially take a risk there and use some of these supplements. But for now, I'm, I'm not old enough to really take the risks yet. And I'm still learning, I'm still gathering evidence. So uh, I guess my, my advice for the average person is, you know, start with the basics, right? Like the basics that I just mentioned, uh, and you will go a long way. Like that should account for like maybe 80% of, of, uh, of longevity. And then if you wanna, if you feel like it, learn about the, the, the more hardcore stuff as well. Yeah, I think it's interesting. You ask a lot of people, you know, experts in the space, what their what their regimen is, and, and the blanket response to me seems to be something like, you know, I, I can give this advice and that advice on like the traditional things of you know diet and uh, maybe people talk. Some people talk about fasting, but also just like exercise and, and sleep and things. And uh, so, so sort of the uh, the most common answer I've heard is like, hey, you know, we're we're just not there yet to have like these really sophisticated regimens and responses, but sort of everything that we're working on is, is hopeful to sort of get there in the, in the decade or, or two or however many ahead. Um, but for now there's sort of these, uh, you know, well-known things that you can do to be healthy and that's sort of all there is and going too deep and, and trying too many supplements at a certain point might be sort of, uh, counterproductive but at the very least there's a few things that are known that, that are hard enough to do is get enough sleep and uh you know eat well and things like this and and then maybe at least the way i think of it is like it's sort of um you know i think we're at this very unique and interesting point in time you know unique in all of history where like it's not unreasonable to you know, maybe it's a 1% chance or a 0.1% chance or a 50% chance, who, who knows what it is, but there is some probability, it seems that we can start meaningfully extending health span and lifespan within our lifetimes. And so you want to sort of prolong your life by whatever means we have to, you know, long enough to, to see that within your lifetime. Uh, how, do, how do you think about like longevity, escape velocity and you know, the, do you think similarly that there's a chance that we could get there? And I know you're not an expert, but like, does this sort of factor into, um, you know, more, more on like the personal level, does this factor into like sort of how you live your life at all now that you're sort of deep into the longevity stuff? hundred percent. I think, I think the probability at number one is not zero. So anything above zero, um, any probability above zero times the potential uh, reward of being infinite still gives you an EV of infinity, right? So um, it's certainly worth, it's certainly worth, um, I mean, it's certainly uh, 
at least subconsciously drives my day-to-day -day decisions when it comes to like eating, sleeping, uh, especially stress reduction. Um, I think for me, that's the hardest part for, for most, for a lot of people, that's also like re stress reduction is such a, like everything else, like eating, sleeping, exercise, you can force yourself to do those things. But when it comes to like anything that's mind related, like stress, anxiety, these things, it's very hard. Once you get into it, it's very hard to get out because you need to, you need your own mind to treat your mind. Right. So like, it's, it's very hard to, to, to heal yourself or um, uh, protect yourself when it comes to mind related um, health issues. Uh, but anyway, uh, the reason why I'm saying that is like all these things are, um, you know, th this idea of longevity escape velocity does at least uh, at the back of my mind uh, drives my day-to-day my -day, uh, decisions. So it sounds like, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like you've spent some time um, sort of intentionally thinking about stress reduction. Do you have any strategies that like you can share? You know, you mentioned meditation briefly earlier, but um, is this a problem that you consider yourself having like identified and to some extent solved or for yourself or um, something you're still sort of thinking about and exploring? Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I come from a, a very high stress kind of work environment in trading. I've always thought of myself as somebody who's very stress resistant, but it turns out that, um, you know, most of the time, uh, I guess I can't speak for everybody, but for myself, I just realized like, you know, um, I, I'm just surprised, I'm just suppressing my own kind of negative um, thoughts and emotions, when, uh, like for instance, anger, anxiety, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And I don't realize I'm, I'm stressful or anxious until I start feeling some physical um, discomfort. Um, and after I go through like, uh, get a bunch of checks and, and I realize there's nothing that's mechanically wrong with my body. And after you rule, rule all those things out, it turns out that it's really the mind. So um, I think the number one thing that I, I do, I try to do at least is to realize I have some of these problems uh, when it comes to the mind and when it comes to anxiety and stress and stuff like that. And it turns out that, you know, there are many schools of meditation, for instance, but it seems like most of them, they all talk about, you know, recognizing and realizing that you have certain discomfort or pain in your body or in your mind. Like every meditation course I've done, they always talk about that. It, it, they always talk about realizing and recognizing your own problems. And, and I think that's a great first step. And sometimes the fact of trying to recognize those problems itself will heal the, the problems, the, the physical problems or the physical uh, symptoms that, that you're having. So I, I try to meditate. I think it's really helpful. Um, you you want to do that uh, consistently, even if you don't feel anything discomfort, even if you don't feel any pain or anything like that, uh, because the, the, the benefit compounds over time. Uh, you may also have a preventative kind of effect as well. Uh, sleep definitely reduces stress. Um, there's something that people don't talk about in general. It's it's so underappreciated is to spend time building relationships, um, close relationships, not like having a hundred friends or having a hundred thousand followers on Twitter, but really building close relationships with friends, spending time with the family, 
Um, I think that's really important. Uh, I don't know the underlying, I mean, I have some ideas to the underlying, I guess, medical or, or biological processes, but you know, it, it does seem to reduce cortisol and, and stuff like that. Uh, if you spend quality time with friends and family, that's really, really underappreciated. Um, so there's that. Um, and um, I mean, even eating healthy problem, like the, the stress is such a, like stress can just cause a bunch of problems uh, throughout the body. Like uh, it's, it's um, there, there's, there's probably quite a few hormones that are related to, to stress that will potentially cause physical symptoms. And it's, I think it's really important to, 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 to make sure that uh, you're not um, super stressed out or, or anxious and, and do everything you can to, uh, to reduce um, stress and anxiety, I think. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. As you're talking about all of this, I'm just like sort of mouth open about like the sort of similarities between what you're talking about and myself. Like this gets somewhat personal, but um, similarly to, to what you said, like I've always, you know, from school through starting work and everything, uh, been in, in like a relatively high stress sort of environment and uh, a lot of people sort of working hard to excel in whatever they're doing. And, uh, and, you know, like myself included, but like you, I always sort of, even to this day, like, I, I just don't think of myself as like a high stress person, like people, like people not complain, but people, um, you know, say like, I'm anxious, or like, I'm dealing with like anxiety. And like, I never really, you know, I, I guess, once in a while, maybe I, I might feel anxious or something. But it's just something that genuinely, I just don't feel like I deal with. But to your point on actually having sort of physical flare-ups um i've had like you know some basically like i've had chronic back pain for like the last few years or so and it sort of goes up and down you know here and there but um hey just very quickly uh, on that note i don't know if you read the book um sarno uh, uh there's uh yeah exactly yeah um i, I was reading that this morning um so i i'm, I'm actually going to try that i don't have a, a a chronic back pain but some of my family does so um yeah i think that's uh that might, might be something that your audience might be interested in um it, it seems that chronic back pain is such a uh, epidemic in at least in, in developed world where we're stressed um it is super high and um the, the chronic back pain is actually a symptom of that yeah, it's it's funny. Um, I I just you you were reading it this morning. I just finished it probably two weeks ago. Uh, my friend from who I met on Twitter, Medi, ha, had recommended it to me. Um, he's actually really into longevity as well and working on a, a cool company called Vital Health. Uh, I think it's vitalhealth.com. So you can go check that out if if you're listening. But uh, I, I'm actually a, I'm actually an investor. Uh, oh, you so are. Okay. I, I yeah. <laughs> Okay, so uh, I guess I guess uh, a, lo a lot of things are connecting here, but uh, yeah, that that book, uh, for better or worse, sort of made me realize that like even though I and, and like I've actually spent met time like meditating. I think of myself as someone who's um, it, it's never really been something like I enjoy running more than meditating. It seems to do more for me in terms of like mental health and just like it's a nice way for me to like come back to earth. And I come out of a run with like some really clear thoughts where meditating maybe a little bit does that, but I've just never, it's never really like clicked for me. 
but that book was the first thing that made me realize like, okay, somehow, and maybe it's just, maybe I'll be over this in a few months or whatever, but maybe there, maybe I like somewhere down in the subconscious or whatever, am actually feeling stressed. And it's just, I, I don't know. I think there's like a very interesting question there, which is something along the lines of like, if you genuinely don't feel stressed or anxious or whatever, like, is it, you know, is that, but, but it's like somewhere deep in the subconscious, like, do you need to go and get it? If that makes sense? Like, I don't know. It's been something that I've just been thinking about lately um, where like, I try to be really honest with myself and I don't want to like trick myself into thinking I'm stressed if, if I'm not, you know? Um, so it's like sort of this careful, careful balance that I've been working on. Uh, but it's interesting. A lot of, uh, threads connecting there. It sounds like. Yeah. It seems like the, the body has the body, the body and the mind are a pressure valve. If you try to suppress your mental negative emotions, it'll come out somewhere else in your body. Uh, which in this case is the chronic back pain. And the, the book that, that we just talked about, you mentioned that sometimes people, when people, uh, when people back pain go away, they get some other problem. Uh, they get some problem in their stomach, stomach ulcer and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And when that ulcer goes away, uh, they get a problem somewhere else. So there's like the pressure will always go out somewhere in your body if you continue to suppress some of the uh, uh, anxious, uh, or other kind of negative emotions. Yeah. So, so we'll see. It's a, uh, it's a TBD for me. I, I I'm, I try to be a very positive person. I think I generally am a very positive person. And, uh, so I don't know if, if sort of being that way, uh, is sort of serving against me in some, some capacity. And I'm sort of like suppressing negative stuff and it's, it's showing up in my back. And like I said, it goes, sort of up and down in, in these sort of unpredictable, hard to hard to sort of relate to a cause way, but uh, certainly an interesting thing for people to think about it. And yeah, go, go read the book if, uh, if this sounds interesting, I guess. Um, I, I feel a little bit remiss that we haven't talked about crypto at all and we're coming up on uh, the end of the hour. So maybe we can just do a, uh, a very high level sort of overview on, on your current perspective uh, and then maybe do a to be continued on the conversation, but uh, maybe a, a good prompt, I think, would be uh, you've mentioned that I think, uh, you know, it's like 1998 in crypto, I, I think, drawing upon like the analogy for the Internet. Um, where do you think we are now? What do you expect for, uh, you know, whatever time frame you want to talk about to come and uh, sort of what are you excited about? What risk do you see? Just like the overall sort of impression of, of where things stand. Yeah, um, well, there's certainly some similarities between now and 1998 and there's some differences. Uh, it's not a perfect analogy. Uh, I would say when it comes to, uh, you know, the kind of consumer kind of usage of crypto, I don't think crypto is actually, um, you know, as, um, as big as the internet was in 1998. I think we're, still a lot earlier than 1998, uh, crypto in general. Um, but when it comes to funding and, and excitement and hype and all that stuff, uh, we're certainly near um, that kind of uh, uh, period. Um, if we drill down into the, the different sectors in crypto, uh, obviously Bitcoin uh, 
most people in the macro world, you know, the, the, those macro traders are um, looking at Bitcoin as digital gold. So the digital gold narrative that, that the Bitcoiners used to talk about on Bitcoin, uh, Bitcoin talk um, has become a self-fulfilling prophecy um, and, uh, and it's working. Um, so, but you know, obviously it'll probably t- again take years, maybe even decades for, for Bitcoin to really overtake uh, gold as, as you know, the dominant uh, kind of uh, store value, uh, inflation uh, hedge, um, potentially a geopolitical hedge as well. Um, so that will take a while, but we, we, we have gone very far so far with, with Bitcoin. Um, DeFi is still being used as sort of a toy for the wealthy, uh, especially the crypto wealthy. But so is every technology, virtually every technology that the average person uses today um, began as some sort of uh, playground, some sort of toy, be it you know, computer or smartphone or uh, anything that, that you use today started as, some, as being something expensive to use uh, and that, that, the, that the wealthy uh, could, could, could afford. Um, but so I'm obviously I'm very bullish on DeFi, but again, it's a generation long kind of effort um, when it comes to NFTs, digital art, digital collectibles, I would argue that this sector has gone even further than, than DeFi when, it's, when it comes to the social impact, when it comes to like, you know, mainstream adoption, um, maybe because it's easier to use, uh, it's more intuitive. Like in DeFi, it's, you still have to um, kind of you know, install wallets and then do all this yield farming and, you know, this MetaMask, Uniswap, Aave, like all these things, it's not, the user experience is very different from like using a traditional financial product, but with digital art, NFTs, um, you know, especially with uh, you know, NBA Top Shot, for instance, a lot of these products have kind of abstracted the crypto native user experience away from the average user. And it's also a lot easier to understand. It's just, you know, it's gaming items, collectibles, that kind of stuff. So um, in terms of the number of users, it does seem to me that NFTs uh, have gone even further uh, than, uh, than DeFi. But I, I still think that DeFi might be a, a much bigger vertical, uh, just looking at traditional finance. Like the financial sector um, is a $10 trillion sector. Um, you probably can't say the same about uh, you know, gaming and collectibles and, and so on. But again, it's a very interesting, like it really brings, the sector really brings crypto to the masses. Um, the one sector that hasn't t- taken off at all so far, but I'm, something I'm really excited about over the coming years is decentralized social media. Uh, it's something that I didn't think we needed three years ago, but maybe starting about a year ago with all that you know, censorship, uh, around, around uh, you know, Trump and, uh, you know, the sort of very liberal kind of leaning um, uh, on Twitter and then the, the emergence of uh, Republican lean or, or you know, uh, right-leaning kind of social media like Parler, right? We've seen kind of, um, uh, well, number one, a lot of uh, social media-based censorship uh, the, the, the president of the United States is not even the most powerful man in the country. It's the CEO of uh, those massive social media companies. Um, 
And number two, every social media platform has some kind of tribalism and, um, you know, and as a result, a little bit of community driven uh, censorship as well that drifts other groups of people away from the platform. So I think crypto-based social media is a natural solution for this. Um, it's a solution where um, no one can really can unilaterally censor anybody else. No one can really change the monetization rules um, um, you know, at the expense of the users, something we've seen with YouTube, for instance. Um, and the platform cannot easily deplatform the developers building on top of it. So some of these problems can be naturally solved by crypto, at least in theory. The, re the reason why I'm saying in theory is I think the tech isn't there yet. Even the most scalable platform or, or block blockchain right now, let's say like Solana, for instance, <coughs> sorry, can't really handle the kind of uh, transaction per second that social media are, are, are handling right now. Um, so I think this might take a few more years to take off, but I'm, I'm really excited for that. Yeah, well, that, that is a, a fascinating overview, and I'm sure we could spend another hour digging into, uh, you know, decentralized social media and DeFi, and uh, certainly talk about more about what you're doing now with DeFi Alliance. I would highly encourage anyone uh, who's listening, who, who's working in DeFi to uh, check it out, or, or more importantly, I guess, if, if you're not yet working in DeFi, but have an idea for a, uh, a project that you want to get started on. I think DeFi Alliance would be a great place to uh, to get started. But Chow, I, I want to thank you uh, again for for taking the time and joining me on the show today. It's it's been an awesome conversation, and uh, and I'm sure we could have could have gone a lot longer. But uh, appreciate your time and want to be respectful of it. Where can people go to uh, follow you and what you're working on from from here on forward? Yeah, for DeFi Alliance, uh, feel free to check out our, our new website and which will be rolled out in a couple of months, uh, defialliance.co. Uh, and if you're a startup, feel free to apply there uh, to our accelerator program. And for myself, uh, you can find me generally on Twitter, um, QWQIAO is my initials, that's my first name. All right, well, thank you very much. Thanks, Jake, take care.